Father, you said at the beginning of time, let light shine out of darkness. And we pray tonight, let your light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of yourself in the face of Christ Jesus. Grant us your spirit's help, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll see in verse 1 of chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Now that word dark in John's gospel does not just inform us of the time of day. Behind it is this uh, world of meaning. It is used by John symbolically to infer not only wickedness and sin, but also misunderstanding and unbelief. We know what it is for darkness to hold that kind of symbolism, don't we? So that is why when people go trick-or-treating, they go at night, not at 12 o'clock midday. Because there is a certain scariness, I was going to say a darkness about darkness, but you know what I mean. That is why when you go on a ghost tour in Edinburgh, you go at night. It's why when you go to the Edinburgh dungeons, it is all dark. Because darkness holds within it this kind of innate symbolism. And so when John says, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, he is telling us more than just it was before sunrise. We are still in the darkness of sin and really deep in the darkness of unbelief. See, Mary Magdalene, on the first day of the week, was still raw with grief. She'd had not a great weekend. It had left her emotions ravaged. I mean, she has been at every episode of this weekend. She has seen her Jesus uh, suffer a rigged trial. She has watched as he was flogged. She has stood there with his mother, no doubt cowering in each other's shoulders, not looking as they have watched the spit fly in his face and the punches thrown and the insults said. Her eyes full of tears have seen as the soldiers have nailed into his hands. She has watched as he screamed and breathed his last and bowed his head. She's been there. And she's now had a couple of days where no doubt she has just been replaying on repeat all the episodes of Friday, only increasing and intensifying her grief. And eventually her grief drives her to the tomb. But as Mary goes, these are dark days. It is, it is not a kind of pleasant trudge to the tomb. She is going, as the other Gospels tell us, full in her hands of spices. She's going expecting to embalm the body of Jesus. It's not a pleasant day of work that lies ahead of her. So we read in verse 1, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Do you see, the sight of an empty tomb is not an exciting finding for Mary. 
Even though the narrative is progressively moving towards sunrise, it is getting darker and darker for Mary. She's not expecting to go to the tomb to find a resurrected Jesus. She is going to find an entombed corpse. That is really different to our view of Easter morning, isn't it? We think empty tomb, happy days. She goes, finds an empty tomb and panics, just struck by grief. What is this? They have desecrated the tomb of the one I love. Where are these grave robbers? Where have they put his body? This isn't see what a morning glorious and bright. This is see what a morning hopeless and dark. That's a different take on Easter, isn't it? She is in the darkness of misunderstanding and unbelief. And so not only have her dreams been robbed but they have been buried and now stolen. And so her sorrow and her weeping intensify. It is important to notice here that Mary is not expecting the resurrection of Jesus. She doesn't go like some of you do for the next sales or for the street fireworks with her deck chair and some popcorn waiting to just watch as the stone rolls away and the angels come and everyone goes, hallelujah. She is going with spices to prepare Jesus' body for its time in a tomb. She's not expecting to find a king, but a corpse. And that continues for a lot of the narrative. Look down at verse 13. Even when she speaks to the angels, she says, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Then verse 15, when she speaks to this gardener, She says, Sir, if you'd carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. See how small a view she has of Jesus? She is expecting to have to carry him back to an empty tomb. These are dark days. Dark days that are full of tears. Look down with me, too, to verse 19. We move from the darkness of dawn to the darkness of dusk. This is evening in verse 19. When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. It's interesting. The disciples by this stage in the narrative have, two of them have seen the empty tomb and they have heard the report from Mary who has now met the resurrected Jesus. And yet still they are cowering. They're like wimps locking themselves in an upper room. They too are not expecting a visit from a resurrected Jesus. The only thing they're expecting is some kind of Jewish SWAT special ops team to burst through a locked door. Or they took our Lord, surely they'll just pick us off one by one. The disciples are really exposed at this moment. They've been kind of hidden behind Jesus for the for the ministry so far, kind of riding off the back of his wave, but now he's gone, he's been taken away, while we're left to see their true nature. Cowards, wimps, together in a room for fear of the Jews. This is not a glorious and bright evening either. It is not only full of tears, but this is a dark days that are full of fear. Do you know what? If... If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
if his empty tomb was a result of grave robbers, that was the right reaction. All that's left is tears and fears. If Jesus' body disappeared by someone stealing it, then it is all hope gone. A crucifixion without a resurrection is, well, as meaningless as any other death. That was the right reaction from Mary and the disciples. The Bible is honest enough to say that to us. Remember 1 Corinthians? The Bible will say, do you know what? If Jesus hasn't been raised, pity Mary. Pity the disciples. Because their life's a sham. The previous three years following this Jesus has been a complete waste of time. Pity Mary. Pity the disciples. Pity me if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. One writer very honestly says this, everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs on whether Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me. Nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. All that's left is tears and fears. Now you may be not a Christian here, and you think, well, happy days. Uh, The fall of Christianity would be a great thing for our culture, because with it could come the, the age of reason. Maybe you think that if Christianity was silenced, finally our culture could be liberated from its shackles to the foolishness of religion. Well, even that is not a happy conclusion to come to. Because if what is stolen is the body of Jesus, that's not the only thing that is robbed of us. But with that being robbed also comes any purpose in this creation, any direction for the future, and any meaning in this moment. Your life becomes just enslaved to, well, meaningless luck. And at the end of the day, your main purpose of being is just to pass on your life to the evolutionary process that actually looks forward to your death. So speed it. See how you lose the resurrection of Jesus at the center point of history, and it robs you of everything. Everything. It's not a happy conclusion to come to. It's to be left in dark days that means you were born without reason, you prolong yourself by chance, and your end is oblivion. I don't know if you remember the bus campaign in London from the New Atheists, but one slogan stuck with me when I saw it. It said, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy life. Really? Enjoy life? It strikes me that that's very easy to say for a middle to upper class person working in the Western world. Yeah, sure, enjoy life. But try that one to, I don't know, someone who is battling with cancer. Try that to some of the people struggling in Turkey after the earthquake. Try that to some in the devastation of 
the floods of Thailand. Oh, enjoy life. Really? It leaves you pretty vacant. It robs you of almost everything. See, they, they try and give the purpose of life merely as being enjoyment, but the tragedy is that we end up enjoying ourselves to the distraction of what is really true. I walk to work every day, apart from when it rains, going to get the bus. But it's a, it's a two-mile walk to work. And as I walk to work, do you know what? Death sings really loudly. Uh, in my two-mile walk, I pass three cemeteries, one funeral parlor, one plaque on a pub wall that is in memory of a firefighter who gave his life in a pub fire. And I pass numerous newsagent stands and billboards that show me the latest crime statistics or murder or natural disaster. Death sings pretty loudly in our city. And the atheist will just say, well, entertain yourself. Do anything to distract yourself from these realities. We even make a joke of Halloween to try and distract ourselves from it. We do anything to get away from the one fact that renders everything meaningless. That actually life is left with only fear and tears. If that conclusion is correct. Tim Keller helpfully writes this. I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should at least want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so many people care about injustice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make any difference? Enjoy life? See, he says you should at least want it to be true. And that is not a reason for believing but it does merit that it's worth some kind of investigation. And you want to, the, the resurrection actually demands a burden of proof from you. You've got to somehow explain the resurrection and the results that come from it. It might be that your explanation is, well, people cannot, and so Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so you say, well, fine, it must have been a concoction of the imagination of the hallucinations of these disciples' minds in the midst of their grief. They made it up. But actually, that explanation won't quite cut it. You need to go slightly further because further explanation is demanded of you. For example, you've seen already Mary and the disciples did not expect this Jesus to rise. See, verse 9 tells us that they did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise. See, the Jewish, in the Jewish mind, when they heard the resurrection, they did not think of one guy rising. They thought of the end of the world when everybody would rise together, when God would put an end to suffering and death. The idea of one bloke rising in the middle of human history when everyone else is still living and dying and suffering was preposterous. They never would have conceived such an idea. And let alone, they would not have been able to make it stick with anybody else. 
if they were having a kind of round table discussion about, okay, how can we make up a myth that will give us some credibility on the back of this Jesus guy? And someone said, why don't we make him, him alone rise from the dead? It would have been laughed off and chucked in the bin. Nah, no one would believe that. The other one is, how do you explain the fact that all of the Gospels say that a woman arrived first at the tomb? We've seen in John that it, who is it that arrives first? It is Mary. In the time of uh, writing, a woman's testimony would not have been accredited in a court of law. So if someone came to that roundtable discussion and said, I've got a great idea for the start of our myth, let's have a lady turn up first, the rest of the boys would have said, what are you talking about? No one would ever believe that. That will undermine our argument. That will never give us credibility. So why do all four gospel writers start with the woman arriving at the tomb? Because they're not making up a myth that they want to make as believable as possible. They want to provide what actually happened. They want to show what the eyewitnesses actually saw. That's a concern. I mean, still, there are more things that you need to explain if you're going to get rid of this idea of the resurrection. How do you explain the kind of inconsequential details that we find in John 20? Uh, They don't appear in myths. And they serve no other purpose in this narrative. I love the bit where John tells us that he is a quicker runner than Peter. Now, is that just the basis of John being a testosterone-filled alpha male who wants for the rest of human history for everybody to know that he is a faster runner than Peter? Or is it the fact that, you know, that is just how it happens? That is what, as the eyewitnesses, they saw. The other one is the bed linen. The bed linen was found folded up and separated. Now, grave robbers, I don't think, would have done that. I don't think they would have folded and separated the dirty washing. I don't think they would have taken time to remove all that from the body of Jesus. How many people have you heard who's had their house burgled, who when they came back, their house was tidier than it was when they left? How do you explain these things? And yet there's more. How do you explain the transformation of these disciples? Cowards, wimps, for fear of the Jews, locked in a room. And yet somehow, less than a month later, they will testify before those very same people that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain the fact that years later, they would testify to the point of death for the sake of this? This is a truth that they will stake their life and their death on. I don't think they would do that for some hoax about a Jewish carpenter. How do you explain the emergence of the early church? That so quickly it went from this little band of wimps to thousands upon thousands. In the years following where, well, the eyewitnesses could have been interrogated, the tomb could have been inspected, and it would not have been permissible to make something up. See, there is actually a burden of proof that lies upon you if you want to deny the resurrection. So what does John do? What does John tell us? Because, well, destroying Christianity is easy. There's only one thing you need to do. That is disprove the resurrection. But destroying Christianity is actually really hard. 
because you have to come up with a more plausible explanation than what John says. What is it that moves Mary from her tears to joy? What is it that takes these disciples from fear to joy? Let's read together. Look in verse 11. Mary eventually stomachs up in her grief and finds the courage to look into the darkness of this tomb. And as she does, she is confronted with a vision of white, two angelic beings sitting where Jesus' body once had lain. It's the first hint that actually this grave robbery is not a result of kind of burke and hair, but actually it comes from the greatest of grave robbers. God the grave robber has been at work. And so they say to Mary in verse 13, Woman, why are you crying? It's a mild rebuke. Mary, why are you crying? Never were tears more inappropriate than on this morning. Because this was not a morning of darkness, but of light, not of despair, but of joy. Mary, why are you crying? And yet still in the darkness of her unbelief, she says, oh, I'm looking for a body. All of a sudden in verse 14, she starts to realize someone is standing behind her. We read, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And so he too asks, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Little does Mary know that these words are going to be the thing that transforms her hunt for a corpse into her hunt for a king. Little does Mary know that the one she looks at does not have the green fingers of a gardener, but has the pierced hands of her Savior. And what does he say to her? Have a look. What does he say in verse 16? he say? Mary. The good shepherd knows his sheep and he knows them by name and his sheep recognize his voice. One word that transforms this morning from hopeless and dark to glorious and bright. And the personal savior, the physical resurrected savior says, Mary. Now, from verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not returned to the Father, I think we can assume that Mary embraces him. She either falls on the floor and grasps his feet, or she just plain out bear hugs him. I don't know which one it is, but he, she embraces him. Do you see this? The resurrection is not clutching its shadows. It is not fumbling about in the mind for hallucinations. But the resurrection is huggable. I love that. She knew she had watched that he was definitely dead. And now in hugging him, she knows that he really is alive. She came to this crime scene, this garden, this tomb, expecting to find a decomposing corpse. And she finds a resurrected king who knows her by name. Look at verse 19 as well. What turns the disciples' fear to joy? Verse 19, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. 
How would you have reacted if that was you? Put yourself in that room. You're cowering. You're fearful. And suddenly Jesus appears. How do you react? I think they freaked out. I think there was chaos. I think they would have screamed. All of a sudden he appears. Uh, Well, maybe it's just me. (laughs) You all look quite blasé. He's just appeared. What is that? And so here are his first words. Peace. Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. Do you see what he does? He brings the crucifixion and the resurrection together. He shows the scars that speak of his crucifixion and his physical presence that proclaims his resurrection. And he brings these things too together. See, I think we often just think the scars were so that they could recognize him. I don't think that's right. I think the scars were trophies of triumph. As he says, yes, I did say it is finished, but I said that on the cross so that today in this room I could say, peace be with you. He died saying it is finished so that he had satisfied the anger of God by becoming an enemy of God on the cross so that he could say, peace be with you. The message of the resurrection is the result of the crucifixion and the crucifixion means nothing without the resurrection. And so Jesus, bringing the two together, showing his scars and being with them, he says, peace. It's a great peace in the light of Mary and the disciples. It's a peace for Mary that means she doesn't have to worry about carrying his body back to an empty tomb, but he is the one who is going to carry her from death to life. It's a peace that means for these timid, whimpering disciples that they do not have to fear the Jews. No, they do not even have to fear death. That is the peace that he brings. It is a peace that can call God Father, not judge. It is a peace that can call Jesus brother. It is a peace that knows the forgiveness of sins and the intimacy of God through his Holy Spirit. He says peace. And do you see the disciples in verse 20? The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They went from freaking out to jumping for joy when they saw the resurrected Jesus. It strikes me that there is a lot of suffering in Charlotte Chapel at the moment. We have a lot of brothers and sisters who are going through really intense battles. Physically, Mentally, emotionally. Do you see the hope of the resurrection? For our brothers and sisters, it feels at the moment like suffering is just gripping them. It is a really physical thing. Do you see the hope of the resurrection? It is as physical as their suffering. In fact, the resurrection is huggable. If you see these brothers and sisters, if you visit them, please take them to the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for those who find peace with him, that is the forgiveness of sins, there is real 
physical, tangible hope in the resurrection of Jesus. So physical, physical, it is huggable. That is glorious. There is joy founded on this resurrection. Nothing that will make you smile more. Nothing that should make you chat more incessantly. Nothing that you want to shout more about. Nothing that makes you more impatient. I have joy because in him I have peace and life. You are overjoyed. That's glass. Do you know, in the mornings on that walk to work, in those two miles where death sings pretty loudly and attempts to outsing all of my joy, what is it that counters that noise? What is it that can outsing the loud songs of death? Do you know what the resurrection does? The resurrection doesn't just sing, it shouts back at death and says, Do you know what? If you were to walk those same two miles in the new creation, there will be no cemeteries, the undertakers will be unemployed, there will be no such commemorative plaques, and there will be no bad news. <laughs> Just life and peace and joy. That is the hope that comes through the resurrection. Let me read you a quote from John Flavel. This is brilliant. Death is a dreadful enemy. It defies all the sons and daughters of Adam. None can cope with this king of terrors but Christ. And he, by dying, went into the very den of this dragon, fought with it, and foiled it in the grave, its own territory and dominion, and came off a conqueror. He has risen. And so there is life and peace and joy for those who have that life in him. So do you know what we're told of Mary and the disciples? They saw and they believed. They saw the empty tomb. They met the risen Jesus. And so they believed. You can read John 20 verse 30, the end of this chapter. Why has John written this down? So that you might see and believe so that you might read of this resurrected Jesus and believe in him and find life. And because he is the one who has risen, it does mean that eternity hangs on your verdict. But he comes calling your name as physically and as personally as he came to Mary. There is life. There is peace. And there is joy. Take that two-mile walk to work. One day, it may be that your name is a footnote in a newspaper. Your name is on a commemorative plaque. It is your funeral they are discussing in the funeral parlor. And it is your grave that I walk past. But here's the joy. There is life in this resurrected Jesus. This happened on the first day of the week. I think that means this is something new. This is a new beginning. And it may be that this Sunday, this first day of the week, may be that new start, that new beginning, that new life for you. And John's message is believe. See this resurrected Christ and find that peace 
and that joy. Those of us that are Christians, though, we don't get off. Do you notice that the resurrection is used as the grounds for mission? What is the first thing Jesus says to Mary? He says, don't hold on to me. Go. Tell the disciples. What does Jesus say to the disciples? He says, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The resurrection is the basis of our mission to the world. When Mary just tried to hug on to Jesus, he said, okay, don't go hugging on to me like I'm some kind of just personal, usable savior for you alone. Don't get comfy just hugging me now. He says, go, you've work to do. There's a job to be done. And so too he says to us, I am sending you. Don't hug Jesus and keep him to yourself. But hug him and take him to the world. He has sent you, whether it's to your office or to your family or to your neighbors. Don't be selfish like Mary was tempted to be, but go, do what she did. Tell the brothers that he is Lord. It may be that, I don't know, maybe you're contemplating, should I stay in this job or should I go? If you're the only Christian in that office, maybe you should stay. Maybe you're thinking, oh, should I, should I stay around here near my family or should I go traveling the world? Well, do you know what? If your family are not believers, maybe you should move to be closer to your family. Jesus sends us and says, go. Proclaim that Christ is risen and he is Lord. Some of us might be fearful like the disciples, timid, wimps. He says that he sends us not on our own, but just as the Father was with him in his mission, the Spirit is with us. What is it that transformed the disciples from being wimps and cowards to being gospel proclaimers to the point of death? The reality of the resurrection and the sweet enabling of the Holy Spirit. You're not alone. Yours is not the task of success. Yours is the task of faithfulness. And he'll take care of the success. But don't he, he says authoritatively to us, go, I'm sending you. If Jesus has really been risen, we must really go and proclaim this truth to the world. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice that Jesus is not dead. His bones have not decomposed, but that he is really risen. Thank you that he has conquered death. Thank you that in rising from the dead, he has shown that you accepted his finished work, that we might be forgiven. Father, thank you that he calls us by name. And thank you that he brings us peace and joy. Where in this world without him, there is only tears and fears. Thank you. We want to praise you with joy tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.